Welcome to our Changing the Narrative podcast, where we engage in thought-provoking conversations about housing, homelessness, and community with local and national experts. I'm Ann Miske, President and CEO of Union Station Homeless Services. Today's episode is entitled Street Medicine, Healing, and Homelessness. Today, I'll be talking with our guests about innovative ways to bring medical services to those who are unhoused and can't always access traditional medical facilities or services. We'll be exploring how to better understand the unique medical needs of those who are unhoused, including the trauma that just being homeless brings. I'm very fortunate today to have two amazing guests. First, I'd like to introduce Lori A. Gravish-Hertak. She's an assistant teaching professor, as well as the kinesiology internship coordinator and kinesiology alumni relations coordinator to Penn State College of Health and Human Development. We recently hosted an immersion tour for Lori and her Penn State students, where we shared how the street teams and outreach teams built relationships with those who are unsheltered as the starting point of a pathway to permanent housing. And it was such a pleasure to host Lori and the students. So welcome, Lori. Thank you, Anne. Brett J. Feldman is the director and co-founder of the Division of Street Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of USC and assistant professor of family medicine. He's practiced homeless medicine since 2007 and founded programs at Lehigh Valley Health Network Street Medicine in Allentown, Pennsylvania and USC, Los Angeles. He does this work alongside his wife, Corinne Feldman, who is also a street medicine physician's assistant and directs the workforce development and education arm of USC street medicine. Welcome, Brett. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Over the last few years, we've begun to see some really innovative work being done around providing care to the whole person of those people who are experiencing homelessness in our communities, as well as really bringing an awareness of the resiliency of these people, as well as understanding the causes of their homelessness and housing security, and really focusing on their needs. Let me start actually with you, Brett. How do you see that we can build respect and understanding, especially among future healthcare professionals towards those who are unhoused? I mean, I think it starts with being able to separate the person from their housing status. When you start there, then all of the fear-based mentalities that you have, the deep-rooted discrimination or things that are preventing you from actually reaching them tend to go away. So you separate the person from their housing status and you learn to appropriately hate homelessness with everything you have, but to love the person. It starts there with the recognition that there's various forms of poverty that they suffer from. And in order to solve homelessness, even for one person, you have to address all those forms. So of course, there's the material poverty for want of a home or want of food. And we know in LA, outside of Skid Row, a lot of people that we're serving are only getting two to three meals a week. There's the poverty of health, which if not treated now while they're on the street, will prevent them from ever walking over that threshold into housing. And then the spiritual poverty of feeling unwanted, unloved, or isolated, or completely expelled from society. That even if we house them, if that part's not addressed, we haven't completely solved their homelessness. Lori, do you have anything to add? Because I know you're actually working with students and this is one of the things that you're kind of focusing on. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the work you do with students around this issue? Yeah, I think it's about changing the mindset of individuals and trying to decrease some of those biases that exist in society. What I'm focusing on now is trying to, as an educator, to bridge the gap of decreasing systemic homelessness with educational outreach, not only in collegiate settings, but more importantly now in high school settings. So I'm starting a new program that will launch next summer that's an ambassadorship program for rural communities. And then I'd like to 
to be able to model such a program and then try to get other academic institutions to follow in that process. Because as Brett mentioned, every individual living in homeless environments, they have a story to tell and they have unique talents. And unless we as individuals approach them with tender, loving care and ask questions and even just as little as showing eye contact can be an opening experience for those individuals that have those mental struggles and those barriers and those stressors that exist. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. You know, I love what you said about eye contact, looking at that person as a human being. I think there are a lot of assumptions that people have about people experiencing homelessness. And I was talking to a colleague who works in the field, and we were talking about healthcare for unhoused neighbors. And she said, well, they need to have lots of training in mental health issues and drug addiction. My reaction to that was, well, shouldn't medical health professionals have experience in both of those regardless who walks in the door? And really not making that assumption that just because someone is housed, that that's the first thing that they should look for. So Brett, let me ask you, because you work with people experiencing homelessness all the time. How do you approach someone who's experiencing homelessness, either in the field or even if they were to come in? Same way I approach everybody else. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) You know, mostly it's the same. It's a recognition that if they're on the street, that we are coming in to their home at that moment anyway. And so we're coming in with love and respect. We don't open up conversation with, hey, this is Brett from Street Medicine. What medical needs do you have? Because we have to recognize that the situation that they're in right now is extremely traumatic. They're in a crisis situation. There have been other people there before me who maybe they haven't had the best interactions with. And so we start with just talking to them as people, finding out, is there something that we can help you with now? Like maybe they just want water or socks and then getting to ask them about things that they're facing on the street. I find people are very open to talking about that. What food are they getting? Do they have access to clean water? Things that anybody would be concerned about. And then we start getting into the medical type of needs after that. But I mean, you brought up a really good point. When you look at the data, it's about a quarter to a third of people with severe medical mental illness, and substance use disorder. So this is less than half. But when we talk about what we need to do to help folks, that's what we focus on. So we can't exclude those things. It's relevant, but it can't be the only thing we focus on. Yeah, I think that is so true because we do know that with trauma, it's going to affect your mental health as well as your physical health. So those are important, but you're right. We focus on those to the exclusion of other things. So let me maybe backtrack a little bit. Why street medicine? I mean, especially with the Affordable Care Act, there's more access to medical services out there. So people experiencing homelessness can access doctors, hospitals, et cetera. So why street medicine? Street medicine recognizes that people experiencing unsheltered homelessness can't access healthcare the way the rest of us do. And access is much more than being insured. For example, if you are living on the street and you might not be able to leave your encampment in order to go into a doctor's office because you know everything that you own will be stolen. And same thing if they're going to go to the DMV or that maybe an encampment suite might come by and throw all your stuff out if you're not there to say, yes, this is what I want or this is what I don't want. There's an understandable preoccupation with being basic survival needs. As I mentioned before, a lot of the people we serve are getting two to three meals a week. Maybe the most common way they get those meals are they buy them, which means they have to do something to earn money. And in order to go to an appointment, now they're not eating today because they're at the doctor's appointment and also not eating tomorrow because they didn't save money for the next day. So these are impossible choices that we can't expect people to make. Do I eat or do I go to a doctor's appointment? It's not a fair decision. And so we go to the people in recognition of their sacred humanity 
humanity and these challenges that they face with the goal of providing the same quality of care on the street that you'd expect in a brick and mortar clinic. We dispense medications, draw labs, do ultrasound on the street. The whole idea being that if we can't provide it on site, then they're probably not going to get it. Can you talk a little bit about the multidisciplinary teams and how you actually, you mentioned that you can provide all these services, but how do you go out? How do you go out into encampments or riverbeds? Talk a little bit about the multidisciplinary team, if you will. People experiencing unsheltered homelessness need a lot of things. Medicine is a part of what they need. And so we work with Union Station and they provide the connection to the other social services, housing, other things that folks need on the street. So in an ideal world, we can do what we do best and other organizations like Union Station can do what they do best. We can focus on the medicine, they can focus on housing, connected with all their documents to get ready into housing and then support them in that transition into housing. And so it's really a team approach. Yeah, I think that's so important for our listeners to understand that this isn't just a Band-Aid solution. This is really a comprehensive way of approaching people experiencing homelessness that provides for immediate needs, as well as really getting people on the path to stability, health, housing, and reintegration back into community. So by bringing all aspects together in this one team, it's really a much more successful approach. Lori, your students came out here to Southern California and had a chance to actually go out with some of these multidisciplinary teams. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you had them do that and what was the result of that? My goal, Anne, as an educator is to really heighten the awareness of the fundamental learning that fosters peer-to-peer discussion. So you can do that in a classroom setting without a doubt. But along with active listening, it builds an individual's curiosity. And when you start building and piquing an individual's curiosity, it then often leads to compassion. And that compassion hopefully leads to advocacy. And I've seen our students have a great transformation in the journey at which they were able to not only take their 15 weeks of coursework and embedded videos and Zooms and visits, but actually getting them into the field and getting them with the medical teams, with USC CAC and Brad and Corinne and all the wonderful individuals that work on their team approach, but also having them at Union Station to be able to engage and see different facets of how everybody works together in a synergistic approach. I think everybody has what I would refer to as the aha moment where they finally 100% say, yes, I love street medicine. And I love helping people. There's no bias in my body. I want to help the world. And that's what makes this program very unique is that, you know, 15 weeks in a classroom is one thing, but to get them to see people and make the eye contact is really an amazing experience. Yeah. And I love those aha moments that people have because there's such perceptions and misperceptions and myths out there. And when they actually get to know and meet somebody, it is truly transformative. Transformative for the people that are being helped on the street, that are being provided street medicine, but equally as transformative for the people who are out there serving. And I think all of us in this field have really seen that. We wish we could have more people come out and do that. Brad, can you talk to me a little bit about the barriers that you see in terms of street medicine, whether it be with individuals or just in terms of the system? The heart of the barrier is that the systems were not built for folks who live on the street. A lot of people don't know Gandhi before he was known as a guru, was actually an attorney and a politician. And we'll talk about when creating policy, you have to think about the person who is the most excluded, the poorest person, and then you build a policy for them. So in essence, you think about who is the very last one and you build any system for them and it will help everybody. 
Instead, we've built systems for the most amount of people. And in doing so, we always exclude the least. Because the systems were built that way, a lot of what we're up against are people and systems, because systems are made of people, that simply don't understand the reality of the people that we're trying to serve. And so that's why having Lori have her students out there and and all the visitors that you guys get, there is nothing like having them meet a person who is experiencing homelessness, know what their name is, what they're experiencing. And then you start by building on the street and building it backwards. For example, one of the things that we're trying to implement right now is people are insured at this point. 85% of our patients are insured. But what happens when you get insurance, you get assigned to a primary care provider. And the primary care provider is the gatekeeper for all of your care. But they're not the ones on the street. They're actually getting a per member per month rate. They're getting paid, but not seeing the patient. When street medicine sees them, we can't order the things that we need, medications, labs, wheelchairs, referrals to specialists, only the PCP can do that, but they can't get to the PCP. And so what we're trying to get the system to understand that the reality of the folks on the street is that they're not going to get there. We want to be able to care for them. Let us be able to order this stuff, regardless of who they're assigned to. It's a system created barrier. And there are many, many things like that. There's things that we have encountered with your teams, with Union Station, just system-centric barriers that are not designed for the people that we serve. This is a huge issue, not just with street medicine, but I think in general, in terms of working with people who are unhoused, the causes for so many people are different. What's take them to that point? The needs are different. And we have reams and reams and reams of bureaucracy and protocols and steps that really do prohibit us from helping people and getting them off the streets. There's a lot of finger pointing for the people experiencing homelessness. The fact is there should be a lot more finger pointing to the policies and the bureaucracy that we all have to live with that sometimes is just unbearable and why some people on the streets just kind of give up. It's not that they want to be out there, but the barriers are huge. So kudos to you, Brett, to you and your teams. And also I'll say to my teams who are out there, you know, in encampments and riverbanks and out on the street trying to help often in spite of the system. And then the other one, the big elephant in all our rooms is funding, trying to get enough funding so that we can do this life-saving work. And it truly is life-saving and life-saving for our entire community. So I think that's something that we should always remember. It's a great program, but we need the politicians, the elected officials, and the bureaucrats to stick up and say, how do we remove barriers, not create more? I'd love to hear, Brett, going out into encampments is hard, but do you have any experiences like some wins that you could share? Oh, there's wins all the time. Sharing some of the typical stories of we met this person, we connected them here, we got them into housing here. And those are actually fairly common. I wish they were more common, but I think the ones that really stick with us the most are the ones that don't seem like wins. For example, I was working with the VA. They have a street medicine team, outreach team, and I went to see them and they were just totally broken up from a patient who had passed away the night before. And in street medicine, but not just street medicine, other work too, we talk about three things that really drive us. And we all have them just in different percentages. One is a sense of duty where in our context, we're medical providers. These people are really sick. We want to heal them. A sense of justice that they're victims of an oppressive system and we want to right that wrong. And then love where the people are suffering and we want to relieve that suffering. And this individual essentially drank himself to death and they felt 
responsible, they had failed. From a duty standpoint, it seemed like they had failed. They were in charge of helping his alcohol use disorder, and that's what he died from. From a justice standpoint, it seemed like they had failed. He was entitled to housing. He even had a housing voucher and he left a message on their cell phone. Where's my housing? You promised me housing. But from a love standpoint, before he hung up the phone, he would say, I love you. Bye. And when he died, his next of kin was the occupational therapist who he really connected with. And so what a beautiful gift that they gave him to have a next of kin. Imagine thinking about death and not having anybody in the world that you think would care if you left this world. And so he had that because of this team. And so from a love standpoint, it was a complete success um, that he died feeling loved and cared for. And so those are the things that stick with me the most. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You um, having trouble talking here a little bit after that story, but I, I think that is so right. And, you know, I think end of life care is something we don't think about for people on the streets. And that is another huge issue. A lot of our staff are often the last people who spend time with someone as they leave this earth. Incredibly difficult if you're the person dealing with that, but at the same time, what an honor. What an honor it is to be with people on their journey, either while here on earth or onward after, whatever that may be. So thank you for sharing that. Brett, you mentioned just at the very beginning when we were chatting about the recent storms in LA, and it, it wasn't as bad, I think, in some places as we thought, but just how your teams deal with those kinds of things. They're going out in the middle of nowhere often or into riverbeds and those kinds of things. Can you talk a little bit about what your team have to deal with other than the actual medicine? Yeah, I was thinking about this one patient we were following with the Union Station team. He was an elderly gentleman. He was in his late 70s, early 80s, heart failure, kidney failure. He was on a blood thinner for an irregular heartbeat, and he was blind. We go into the riverbed, and we're walking in the riverbed, and then we have to hop the fence, and then we have to climb over this bridge, and then into these woods. He had a lot of things that were worrisome to us, but at night, especially because he was blind, he could only see shadows and he didn't know what was a solid object, what was a shadow. He was very worried about falling into the river, into that ravine where they built the bridge. And so if you saw him in the clinic, you would think what was most likely to kill him was heart failure, kidney failure, but it wasn't, it was falling into this river. And you would only know that if you were there with him in his environment. It's the same thing during the storms. Luckily, the storm wasn't as bad as it ended up to be, but we got a chance to test the emergency system on what would happen if this got to be bad. In LA County, they did their best to get as many beds as possible in preparation. Emergency beds, I think they ended up with 350 for the county for 50,000 people. There's the after the storm stuff, just like any natural disaster. How do you pick up? You know, their tents are not going to weather a storm like that. So now everybody needs a new tent. And so we were able to find some funds to buy new tents after the storm. I think, though, the thing that hits me more than ever is why do we as a society even allow this to happen? 350 beds when we have 50,000 people on the streets. So thank goodness for people like you, Brett and Lori and folks that you work with for my teams that are out there. But again, we need our communities and our elected officials to step up. We shouldn't have to have this. So is there any last thing that either of you would like to say about the work that you're doing about the street medicine program or anything just about the needs of those who are unhoused? Lori, why don't I start with you and Penn State? 
I, I had said this to my department head last spring. I said, I want to thank you for allowing me to build this program. I said, our goal is to continue forging ahead in Los Angeles each year. And then probably by year three, we'll continue with Los Angeles and also head into a second city for a different semester because there was one student on this trip that didn't have the aha moment until we were out with Keck Medicine in the riverbed area. And we went to visit a husband and wife that were living in their vehicle. And I said, how long have you been living in your van? And he said, two years. He instantly with his next breath said, I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. I have a master's degree in information science and technology. I made $80,000 a year. My former house is only two miles from here. But with the recession, I lost my house. I couldn't make the mortgage payments. I needed to move into our vehicle. And that was the moment when the student said, I didn't know it could come to this. And he said, you were right, Lori Gravish. Every individual is two steps away from homelessness. You lose your job and you have a lack of support system. Any one of us could be out on the streets. And we just need to know that we all have support mechanisms in place to help those that are in need. Thank you for that, Lori. Brett, how about you? Any final words that you'd like to say? We talked a little bit about some of the policies and some of the things elected officials can do. I think really in street medicine, we talk about it as the street medicine village. In a village, you can't just have a mayor, right? You need a butcher and a cobbler and a tailor and everybody plays a unique and special role that only they can play. So I would encourage the listeners to think about what they can do in whatever area of the world or industry they're in on how they can contribute to the Street Medicine Village. They don't have to be under the bridge with us. And I hear people say, oh, it's going to be so expensive and it might cost a little extra money. It might cost a lot of time and effort to rearrange some of our systems that aren't working. But we know the cost precisely, really, which is the cost of civilization. It's the cost to remain humane. And if we are not willing to pay that price, then we are not humane any longer. And that will cost immensely. Thank you. That couldn't be said better, Brett, that that's really what this is all about. Providing medicine to people on the streets is important to provide. All of those things is important. But really, at the end of the day, it's about the humanity in all of us, the people we serve, the people who are unhoused, and all of us and doing what we can. So thank you, both of you, for the amazing work that you're doing, both in getting out there directly on the streets and also helping really with the education of our young people around, again, not just around street medicine, but around viewing others with real compassion, care, and humanity. If you want to learn more about our multidisciplinary outreach teams, you can log into our website at unionstationhs.org. Again, that is unionstationhs, as in homelessservices.org. Also check out all the innovative thinking and programs at Penn State College of Health and Human Development at hhd.psu.edu. Thank you for joining us and listening to this episode. I encourage you to subscribe and listen to all our episodes and help us change the narrative about homelessness in our neighborhoods. Together, we can be the solution we want to see in our communities. This podcast is produced by Brenda Lynch and Katie Cookerly-Dietrich, edited by Matthew Patrick Davis, with production assistance and music by Colin Feldman. Special thanks to our Union Station Homeless Services Lived Expertise Advisory Panel, or LEAP, for their insights. 